morning, church. Would you remain standing for the reading of God's word? This comes from Luke 2, verses 28 through 32. Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace, as promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and glory to your people Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you did send your son to be the savior of the world. Grant a blessing upon all who follow him as savior and friend, stirring up our hearts to rejoice just as Simeon rejoiced at the privilege to behold your promise and glory and deliver us from worry, from prejudice, from arrogance, from contention and every harmful fruit sprouting from a heart of self-worship. Concentrate our thoughts, feelings and desires on Jesus and his gospel of peace and reconciliation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Thank you, Patrick. Oh, how are you guys doing? I love seeing your faces. Hope Spitz, I've been missing you. So great to see you this morning. Hey, I love to see your faces, even though for some of you it's just like this much of it. Still great to see you this morning. Welcome to church. My name is Jeff Kennedy. For those of you who are visiting, I'm the senior pastor here. And today we're beginning a new sermon series called Forward. And the title of today's message is Looking Forward, Looking Forward. So we're going to talk about what it means to be a people who from this point forward look ahead to what God has for us. And uh, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had the experience of looking backward and seeing how God was working in your life? Maybe it was a season of your life where you, you could look back on that season and say, in the middle of it, I couldn't see what God was doing And now that in retrospect, in the rearview mirror, I can see. I can see what God was up to. I can do that really honestly with my entire life. I can see the people that he brought into my world. The conversations, just these strategic conversations that I would have with someone that would just change the way I thought about something or change my direction. I could see educational opportunities and family and people that God has brought and all of it has conspired to make me like Christ, to lead me to Christ and then make me like Jesus. And if you've ever had that experience, isn't that a wonderful experience? And it can be in the midst of great crisis. Uh, Right now, as a matter of fact, as I was writing this out this last week, I thought about, oh man, I'm right in the middle of something right now that is a real challenge for me. Something that keeps me up at night. Something that keeps me on my knees before God. And I'll be honest with you. I have no idea what God is doing. Like, I don't know why this thing is in my life. I don't really know what to do about it. I don't understand it. But I know eventually I'm going to look back on this season in my life and go, that's what God was doing. And so we're going to look at a story today where the, where the Israelites have exactly that same experience They have the same experience of looking back because, to be able to see what God was doing because they were looking forward. Philippians 3, 12 through 14, Paul said this. He says, not that I have obtained, already obtained this or am already perfected, but I press on, press forward to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, 
I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In this series, we are going to be pressing on. We're going to be looking forward. We're going to be pressing forward. We're going to be looking for the next thing that God is going to be doing through Christ Community Church, through our lives together. And this is going to be our theme passage. Now, I'll preach on that next week. But this week, I want to go to Luke chapter 2. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. We'll be camped out there mostly today. And today, we're going to be looking at what it means to look forward. And I'm going to give you three fundamental planks. Just These are pillars or skill sets or whatever you want to call them for developing a heart that is moving in the right direction. Next week, we're going to talk about pressing forward. How do we forget what is behind? Whatever it is, either successes or failures, and how do we press on? How do we, as Paul said, strain forward to what God has in Christ? And then the next week, we're going to be looking at being called forward. One of my favorite things that Jesus did in his ministry was to call people out of the crowd. That is one of the funnest themes to study in the New Testament, because he would call someone out of the crowd, and he would basically bring them into the light, into public discipleship. How does Jesus call us into a public discipleship? And the last three weeks of the message series, we're going to be looking at our vision and our mission, which is an upward, inward, outward vision. So we're going to be doing that over the next few weeks. But I thought I would start today with a story. I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you the story of Israel in Jesus's day. I want to tell you that story because I think you and I need to understand the cross in light of all that was going on in their world. The people that lived in the first century, so we're in the 21st century, they lived in the first century 2,000 years ago. Those people had an expectation that the Messiah, the King, the Son of David would come and save them. From what? Well, they were already in their land. They had been in their land for a long time, 400 years at least. They had been situated, God promised in Isaiah and Jeremiah that he would bring them back into their land and reconstitute them as as his people and then send them a king, a Davidite, a king in the line of David. So they had that expectation. They were in their land and they had also won their independence. So Jesus lived, he was born in about 3 AD, figure that one out. You know, 3 or 4 AD, right? So he wasn't born in year zero. Uh, Not quite. But about 170 years before that, Israel had won its independence. Israel had won in a military revolution its independence from the Greeks. From a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. And they won through revolution. They won because some revolutionaries... It was called the Hasmonean family. They were called the Hasmoneans. Rose up. They were a a, a priestly family. They rose up and pushed back against Greece. And for 80 years, these people enjoyed independence. Imagine that. But then in 37 BC, they become a client state of Rome. Because of the internal squabbling in the Hasmonean family and the civil war that broke out in that family, Rome took advantage of that and took them over. And basically, they became a client state of Rome. Rome was now their their state patron. And Rome installed in Israel and Judah, or Judea at the time, is what they renamed it, uh, a king named Herod. 
He called himself Herod the Great One. There's a title for you. Herod the Great. And Herod was enamored. He was just over the moon uh, about Greek culture. He thought Greek culture was it on a stick. And so what he tried to do is rebuild these massive construction projects in Israel and on the coastline and in Judah or Judea. He tried to rebuild it in the image of Greek and Rome. And he was an Edomite. He was not a son of Jacob. An Edomite is a son of Esau. So he was from the kingdom of Edom. He was a son of Esau. He was a a puppet king of Rome. And the Jews could not stand him. The Jews hated him. They knew, and he knew, that he was not a Davidic in the Davidic line. He was not (laughs) their nation's rightful king. He was not a son of David. And there are all kinds of prophecies in the Old Testament about God bringing down the king of Edom. And in one particular prophecy, I can't remember if it's Obadiah or Habakkuk or where it is, which it actually prophesies that this king who goes on this massive rebuilding project is going to be brought low. He knew that. He knew that scripture was there. And so now you have a nation of people who are oppressed under Rome. They are oppressed under a usurper king. Taxation is at an all-time high. These people are miserable. They are carrying a heavy, heavy burden. And they are crying out to God for consolation, for comfort, for deliverance. When is this going to end? God, what are you doing? You put us in our land. We're here. Now bring us the Messiah. Bring him to us. And in this climate, a little mom and her husband... A carpenter, Mary and Joseph, show up in the temple with this little miracle baby. And the consolation of Israel arrives. I want to show it to you. Luke chapter 2, verse 25. says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was a righteous and, and devout man. He was looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. So this is actually prophecy that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child, that is, Joseph and Mary brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, which was circumcision and dedication. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation." which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. This child is destined now to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword, he looks at Mary and says, a sword, dear girl, will pierce your heart as well. What do we do when we feel as though we are living in a time in which things just can't get any worse. We are looking forward to a time when God's promises are going to come to pass. God's promises are going to come true, true, but we just don't see a way. We just don't see a way through. So we're going to learn from Simeon and also from Anna in this same story today on how to look forward in our Christian life. First of all, we must acknowledge God's sovereign plan, just like Simeon. I love the fact that his prayer just reflexively, instinctively, starts by addressing God as the sovereign Lord of heaven. You need to know this is not some random prayer. 
It's not some random thing he's doing. This is at the heart of Jewish theology. At the heart of Jewish theology is that God is a God of love, loving kindness. That word chesed in the Old Testament is the verb that is most often used in the New Testament in reference to God. God is a loving and kind God. But God is also the sovereign Lord of the universe. One of his names is Adonai, which means the sovereign. That's one of his names right there in Genesis chapter 1. And when God decrees it, it is so. That's what a sovereign king does. And so God is the high king of heaven. And the Old Testament repeatedly, all through the Torah, all through the Psalms, all through the prophets, refers to him as the sovereign king of heaven. Now, what does it mean When Simeon says, ah, sovereign Lord, what is he referring to? What does it mean for God to be sovereign king? We can look at this in two senses. The first sense is God's sovereign freedom, or that God is a libertarian being. What do we mean by libertarian freedom? Well, we mean that God has the freedom to do whatever he wants to do. Now, you and I also have libertarian freedom, don't you? Yes, you do, to an extent. You and I have a very limited libertarian freedom. Because you and I, there are a lot of things you and I can't choose. You can't choose your family history. Oh, I wish I could. Because if I could, I wouldn't come from a long line of Irish drunks. Like I wouldn't just have shepherd's pie in my bone marrow. You know what I mean? Like if I could, I would change my family history. I probably would have a little bit more of a noble history, but you can't choose that. You can't choose your genetics. You can't choose your anatomy or your biology or your endocrinology, your your Chemistry, you can't change that. You can't change your race. I can't decide to be a four-foot-high Asian woman. That's not up to me. I was born into the world, into a system of constraints. And I have to live within those constraints, but I also have a limited freedom that God has allotted me. If I didn't, then I couldn't be held culpable for sin or crimes. So you and I have a limited freedom because we reflect the image of a free God. But God has maximal freedom. God has maximally optimal freedom. What does that mean? God can do everything. The only constraints on God's freedoms would be what? What would be what? His nature and his will. (laughs) So the only constraint on God's freedom are self-imposed. They are internal. God can do everything that is consistent with his character and his nature. And God can do everything that he wants to do. (laughs) So that... God has pretty much unlimited freedom. So when we say God is sovereign, that's partly what we mean. God is sovereign. God is free. But we also mean that God is the sovereign Lord over creation. God stands in relationship to the heavens and the earth as its sovereign Lord. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, as soon as he brings everything into existence, he stands by nature in relationship to it as the sovereign Lord of that creation. And that's what the Bible repeatedly says about God. Now, Daniel chapter 2, God is sovereign over the nations. Tells us that God is sovereign over the nations. How do we know this? Because Nebuchadnezzar is given a dream by God. And the dream is, is of several successive kingdoms. And it's actually a dream of a statue. And each part of the statue represents, we learn from Daniel later, each part of the statue represents a kingdom. And so you've got Babylon. And then right after Babylon, you've got Medo-Persia or Persia. And then right after that, you've got Greece. And then right after that, you've got this mysterious kingdom out there in the future that is just this iron-fisted kingdom. We know it as Rome. At the time, they didn't know that that's what it would be called. 
but it was Rome. And then after Rome, you have the everlasting kingdom. And during Rome's period of rule, there's an everlasting kingdom that is set up and it smashes all the other ones. And this kingdom is eternal. It's everlasting. You can't conquer it. This kingdom has a king. When Jesus stood in front of Pilate, here's what he said. He says, my kingdom is not of this world, which means you can't march on my doorstep and conquer me. Because my kingdom is going to be like the leaven in the lump. It is going to be like the mustard seed in your garden. It is going to grow and sprout, and it is going to take over the world. It is going to inhabit every culture and every part, all four corners of the earth. And God's kingdom has been growing ever since. God is the sovereign Lord who has determined the unfolding of those nations, those kingdoms. Here's what Acts 17 says, verses 24 and 27. It says, now this is Paul. He's having an argument with Greek philosophers. And here's what he says to them. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it. Okay, so there, that's his relationship to the world. He's the creator. And as such, he is the Lord. He is its sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he, is he served by human hands. In the ancient Near East and in Greek and in Rome, gods were kept alive by the prayers and the offerings of their people. That's why they demanded to do it. And if you don't do it, that God is going to unleash a whirlwind on you or a typhoon or something, you know, an earthquake and swallow you up. Okay, so, but this God is not served by human hands. This God, as a matter of fact, he's not like that at all. As though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he made every ethnicity, every nationality, to live over the whole earth. And he has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. What has God done? God has appointed the kingdoms, the nations. And he has appointed the, the boundaries and the times uh, of where they live. And he did this so that, he, so that we, they, might seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So what do we learn here from this passage? We learn that God is sovereign over the nations. God has determined the boundaries and the times and the unfolding of the kingdoms of this world. God is sovereign over the nations, and God is sovereign over the church. Now, there are any number of New Testament passages I could read to you, especially the book of Ephesians. Just go read that book. But I want to show you this in the Old Testament. I want to show you this in the Old Testament. God is sovereign over the church, Isaiah 28, 6. Now, the New Testament quotes this passage in reference to Jesus. It says, so this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I will lay a stone in Zion, a tried stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. What's the key to living a life never stricken with anxiety and panic? What's the key? To make sure your life is founded, grounded on the foundation stone, the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. When you and I, when, when our lives are built on the foundation of Jesus, you have no reason to be filled with anxiety. No reason to be filled with fear or panic over what happens or what transpires in the nations. So God is sovereign over the nations. God is sovereign over his people, his church, his edifice, his body. And we must know that God is sovereign over our personal lives. I take great comfort in knowing that God is sovereign over my personal life. I don't know about you, but I'm so glad I'm not the king of my universe. 
because I would surely mess this universe up. I'm so glad that I'm not running the show in my life, that I can lean on the Lord and trust in his sovereign plan, even though I don't understand the stuff that he brings to my doorstep. I don't understand the stuff that he brings into my world. I don't get it, but I'm so glad that I don't determine it. Psalm 71, what a beautiful psalm. Write this down. Verses four and six, the singer says this, deliver me, my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of those who are evil and cruel. For you have been my hope, sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord, you have been my hope. You have been my confidence since my youth. From birth, I have relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. What does he take hope in? The knowledge that he serves a Lord who is sovereign over his life. And then Romans 8, 28. One of the best verses in the New Testament. One of the most often quoted passages in the New Testament. And we know, Paul says that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What does God do? God works out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God is sovereign over my life. And even though things come into my life that I did not anticipate, I did not even prepare for, to be honest with you, God gives me the grace to work it out toward his, his glory and his good. So God is sovereign over the nations. God is sovereign over the body of Christ, the church. And God is sovereign over me, my life. Number two, we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our salvation. Now, I'm going to do something I don't normally do, but I, I'm going to use this passage in kind of a Spurgeon-esque way. I'm just going to turn it into analogy because it's so rich. It is just so good. It's such a great analogy of what I think is going on in the Christian life. And here's what happens with Simeon. He cries out to the sovereign Lord of Israel, the sovereign Lord of the universe. And then he says this, for my eyes have seen your salvation. I have seen it, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, your people Israel. So the imagery or the metaphor of sight is rich in the past. I mean, it's just embedded into the passage. I have seen, now I've literally physically seen the hope and the consolation of Israel that I was looking forward to. I've seen him. I've held him in my hands. And he is a light to the people walking in great darkness. And he is the glory, the, sh- the raying forth of the nation of Israel. So after all these years, now his eyes see it. Here's what I think. I just think that a person who has a strong theology of God's sovereignty, I just think that a person who knows that God is sitting on the throne and nothing happens that is a surprise to him, a person who knows that God is sovereign over the nations, sovereign over the church, and sovereign over our lives no matter what may come, and a person whose eyes are fixed on the author and finisher of our faith, that person can rest. They can rest from worry. They can rest from anxiety. They can rest from the panic-inducing news that comes on our TVs every day. And I love the fact that he says, ah, sovereign Lord, I've seen, the, I've seen your consolation. Now I can go die. Like, I just love the fact that he says, now you can lay me to rest with my fathers and I can go to shalom. I can go to peace. I can have rest. 
And so how, how is Jesus a light to us? And how do we fix our eyes on the author and finisher of our salvation? I think we do it in two ways. One is we focus on Jesus in discipleship. So we focus on Jesus in discipleship. God's plan for you, for me, is not to just save you. God wants more for you than your salvation. He wants to see you become like his image, Christ. You and I are to model, or we are to follow Christ, who is our model, in terms of his character, in terms of uh, his truth. You and I are to follow his teachings and follow his ways, way of life. Matthew 28 says this, Jesus, he raises from the dead, he tells his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given it to me, And now I'm authorizing you, go and make disciples. And you do that in two ways. You baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the one triune God. So that's initiation, that's conversion. And then you teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. This is how you and I are conformed into the image of Christ. God wants us to be disciples and to be discipled in the word. This is God's plan. Look at Romans 8, 29. Now, verse 28 is very comforting. God works all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Yes, great. But for those, those folks, he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, for those of us like Daniel and Ryan and me who like to talk about predestination a lot uh, and have these sort of abstract philosophical conversations about uh, predestination, we enjoy that. But notice the specificity of this passage. What is God predestined for you? Well, for you to know Christ, of course. He's going to work everything out for his good. And he's going to work everything out for his glory in your life. But he's predestined us to be conformed to the pattern. To be conformed to the pattern of his son. Jesus is our model and he is our truth speaker. Jesus is our Lord and our rabbi and our teacher. And you and I are to be conformed to his pattern. So we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, when you and I decide to get in his word, to take it in deep into the recesses of our soul, and to follow it. And then we also focus on Jesus, the hope of the church. Are you looking forward to Jesus returning? Yeah, I hope you are. I really do. I mean, these folks, Simeon, Anna, they were looking forward to seeing the Messiah the first time. They were looking forward to the consolation of Israel, which was the coming of the Messiah. And you and I are looking forward to the Messiah returning as Lord of the world. Titus 2.13 says this, While we wait, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at that verse very carefully. What is our hope? What is your hope? I got to tell you, my hope is not in a political party. I'm telling you that right now. I hope yours isn't either. My hope is not in a candidate. My hope is not in a a branch of government. My hope is not in the Constitution of the United States. Now, I think all of those things are absolutely wonderful, and they're gifts from God, and you and I should be responsible, patriotic citizens. I really believe that, but here's the deal. My hope is in the glorious return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what my hope is in. Because he's the only one that's going to fix this mess. I mean, when he comes and he subdues the nations and he puts them under his feet he is going to fix it all and nobody's going to fix it till he gets here 
And praise God for our political process, but our blessed hope is the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, the Lord, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And we keep our eyes focused and fixed on the day when he will return in glory to catch us away with him, to reign and rule over the nations and translate us into the kingdom of his glorious son. I can't wait for that. That's why I like to talk about it all the time. So whatever situation unfolds, whatever crisis you find yourself in, no matter what faces you, know this. God is still on the throne. God is sovereign over the nations, over the church, over your life. And we are to fix our eyes on Jesus in discipleship and for his second coming. And lastly, we devote ourselves to prayer. We devote ourselves to prayer. Now, I love this little story. This is just a paragraph. I wish we knew more about her. Her name is Anna. She's a prophet. The scripture calls her a prophet. And here's what it says, right, right on the heels of that story with Simeon the prophet. It says, there was also a prophet named Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. Uh, she was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and, and then was a widow until she was 84. So in this culture, she is really ancient. She has probably outlived generations of people in her family. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying, coming up to them at that very moment. She gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So anybody who's looking forward, anybody whose eyes are looking forward, anybody who's looking forward to the consolation and the redemption of Israel, she and Simeon point them to this little baby, this Christ. And as I read that little paragraph, here's what occurred to me. I wonder how many times, just in her mind, she thought, I'm going to die before this happens. <laughs> she was 84 and faithful all the way to the end. And then I thought this. I thought, how many people before her prayed in like manner and did die and didn't see it? Yet they were faithful to pray. I want to give you just a quick history lesson. It's about the three great awakenings in American culture. The first one was in the 1700s. It was called the First Great Awakening. And the greatest philosopher of the First Great Awakening was Jonathan Edwards. You can read his sermons online. You can download them. And they're brilliant. They're wonderful. They will fire you up. But the guy who was the greatest preacher of the First Great Awakening was George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a firebrand. And they transformed America. America had gone through this incredibly intense, dark period right before the first great awakening. And then revival hit. And it lasted about 60, 70 years, somewhere in there. And then it petered out. And then the culture became extremely dark again for about 20 or 30 years. So for about 20 or 30 years, the culture became so dark. They, they say that right before the Civil War only about 10% of Americans attended any kind of church at all. So you think church attendance is bad now? It was worse then. So you're talking about a period of serious darkness right before what is called the Second Great Awakening. And what sparked the Second Great Awakening was Robert Reich's Sunday School Revolution. Robert Reich's Sunday School Revolution was so famous and so international. It is arguably the most successful evangelistic program ever run in the history of the church. Millions of people came to Christ through it. It hit America's shores and it took over so much so, it was so popular that we still practice it today as a vestigial organ of that age and we don't even know why. But that's where it came from. 
And then you have the preaching of Billy Sunday. Did you know that Billy Sunday, without the technology that we have today, did you know that Billy Sunday preached to 100 million people? That dude rocked it. That dude took the gospel to every face on earth that he could, and he preached the gospel to 100 million Americans. And here's the deal. God just poured his Holy Spirit out in that period. And that was called the second great awakening. And so many people came to faith in Christ against a culture that was turning secular and turning toward the enlightenment and turning toward darkness and drinking it to its dregs. And then that petered out. And for about 20 or 30 years, the culture became super, super dark again. And then the third great awakening happened when a young man named Billy Graham... And a leader named Bill Bright went to college campuses and they just started preaching the gospel in, in that world. And, it's, and it exploded into what we now know as, in retrospect, we now know it as the evangelical age. And, and we have been at the tail end of it since about 2005 or six. So you and I are about 10 or 15 years into a period of darkness. Do you think the culture is dark right now? Do you think it is? Here's what I think. I think we're the generation in this interim, in this dark period, who could pray another revival into America. Why don't we? Instead, instead of bellyaching, I'm not getting on anybody's case, but look, instead of bellyaching about the, the, the darkness in the culture and cursing the darkness, let's pray. Let's do what Anna did. Let's wait before God at the temple. Now, we are inviting you on November the 2nd. Is that right? November the 2nd. It's the day before the election to come into this room. And if you're watching right now and you can't make it physically, you get a pass. Hey, you, we're going to live stream that prayer meeting, but we're going to have a prayer meeting for our country. And we're not going to pray for our favorite candidates. We're going to pray for God's sovereign will. We're going to pray for America to come back to faith because right now, folks, we have a generation of people who are lost as men and women can be. And they are thinking wrongly about the world and the nature of humanity and everything else. And God wants to pour his Holy Spirit out again. And he could use us to pray it in. Would you come and join us? That's the call. God has called us. Look, the people who know that God is sovereign. The people who fix their eyes on the Lord Jesus in their own discipleship. And waiting for him to come. The glorious hope of the church. And the people who pray. And who get on their knees and call out to God for their generation. Those people will not be eat up with panic or anxiety. Those people will not be ruled by fear. We will have a weird, freaky rest. And people will wonder, why are you so restful? Why are you so not worried about what's going on, what's blowing up in our culture? Because you and I have faith in Jesus. Amen? So let me give you a few application questions to help you. How strong is your view of God's sovereignty? How strong is it today? Hey, no shame in admitting what's true. There are times in my own life where I have to say, God, I haven't really had a very strong theology of your sovereignty right now because I'm worrying. Our experience of fear in the face of bad news or crisis is directly proportional to our view of God. Is directly proportional to our view of God and his sovereignty. Two, how often do you fix your eyes and refix your eyes and your focus and attention on Jesus, who is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the author and finisher of our faith? Every day I have to remind my sinful nature, I have to remind myself to go into God's word and refocus my attention on Jesus. And thirdly, how healthy is your prayer life? 
You and I can do nothing but pray until we pray. You can't do anything but pray until you pray. Will you pray? Let's pray. (laughs) All right. We're going to invite the worship team to come back up. God, we are so thankful this morning for the ability to meet here freely. We thank you for every patriot who gave their life in sacrifice so we could have this freedom. And God, we thank you for the gift of America. We thank you for the gift and the grace of being able to worship you freely. Praise God. But Lord, our hope is not in a man or a party or a branch of government. Our hope is in the sovereign God of the universe who's calling the shots. Lord, we hope in you this morning, and we want to say collectively, we put our faith and our trust and our hope in you. And God, this morning, we choose to fix our eyes on Jesus. God, we choose to focus on what Jesus would say and what Jesus would do and what Jesus would think in every crisis and in every situation. God, would you conform us into the pattern that you modeled for us in Christ? And Father, we choose this morning, we choose make the choice to pray, like Anna, to be faithful, no matter what. Whether we see it in our lifetime or or not, God, we're going to pray that this country would wake up and we become hungry and thirsty for righteousness again, and that we would be, get to be a part of that. God, would you help us do that? In Jesus' name, amen.